Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Last Thursday was a dark day in Ontario as the Conservative Party, led by businessman bully bullshitter Doug Ford, won a majority in the provincial election. Two guests on the show today assess the factors behind the Tory win and the chances for building an effective opposition to the coming right-wing agenda for Canada's most populous province. First up, Doug Nesbitt. Doug is a PhD student in history at Queen's University and presently completing his dissertation on the days of action during the last Conservative government in Ontario under Mike Harris. He is also an editor at rankandfile.ca as well as an organizer with the fight for 15 and fairness in Kingston, where he lives. He analyzes this 2018 election drawing on links with the Harris years in the 90s and early 2000s. My second guest is Dina Ladd, here for a second time. She is the director of the Workers' Action Center in Toronto and one of the main organizers behind Ontario's wildly successful Fight for 15 and Fairness. She picks up where Doug leaves off, discussing how Doug Ford's win came about and what this tells us about the strategies that can challenge his government from below. But first, my conversation with Doug Nesbitt. I want to start with the comparison to to Trump because I think a lot of people are comparing Ford to Trump. Um, To me, it seems that that's overdone and and often quite overdone. Um, And that a better comparison of what to expect or at least a more informative one in the Ontario context is Mike Harris uh, and his two-term common sense revolution premiership that that was in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this is, you know, a subject that you... Um, are very well versed in it and, and know a lot about. So maybe you could quickly speak to sort of both the both the Trump comparison a little bit, but more elaborating on how you know the Conservatives have transformed Ontario last time they were in office under Harris, and and what you see as some of the uh, connections to that time in in Ford's election. The obvious comparison with Trump is that just the kind of buffoonish populist, right populist that that Ford is as an individual. Yeah. And- that's an easy comparison to make and and the kind of the strange and bizarre and funny appeals to the, the population around things like buck a beer uh or or um some of the more punitive attacks that he he made like uh repealing the scheduled 15 dollar minimum wage uh that stuff to me, seems pretty similar or in line with Trump. I do think it's overblown. There's a lot to say about the differences between the PC party and the Republicans in the United States. One of the more interesting aspects connecting Harris to Ford is I'm not convinced that the base of the PCs has really changed that much. If you look at the numbers of the elections since the the neoliberal, neoconservative uh, renovation of the PC party in the early 90s when Harris was uh, first its leader but had not been elected premier yet, basically under the Ray regime of the early 90s. The the party really roots itself in uh, small as well as medium-sized businesses. It's geographically dispersed. It's not a large capital concentrated in big cities. It has a kind of rural um, base that is quite strong. And 
clearly it's also been able to build up quite a, a, a substantial base in suburban and commuter areas around Toronto and Hamilton, um, and and also in parts of the parts of the province like southwestern Ontario, where the Liberals have simply cratered. You have uh, a kind of more uh, clear class conflict through the parties between the PCs and and uh, the NDP. So the the Tories don't the Tories get their the intelligence, if I can call it that, the, the, their effective politics comes from a very clear class politics that is not only really deeply, uh, really uh, distrustful uh, of, of workers and, and opposed to a, a labor agenda, but also has a this kind of anti-corporate anti-big city and, and it kind of mer- emerges as an anti-elite politics of uh, an outsider politics focusing on on the liberals who really exemplify that Bay Street corporate handout politics. When they come to power, I think that that's a different question. I think that big capital is happy to let the PCs go forward, but big capital is also uh, quite cautious about uh, any sort of reforms that would incite any sort of social uh, uh, confrontation between labor and the government or which would bring employers into the crosshairs. And that's precisely what Harris instigated in the late mid to late 90s. And that is something that I think a lot of people fear Ford is about to do. Uh, but I think that's still an open question. I think the jury is really out on the uh, the Ford government. One of the important differences between Harris and Ford is Harris was really, I mean, his whole project was called the Common Sense Revolution, and it was revolutionary in the sense that it it really put an end to a forty to fifty year period of an expansive welfare state uh, that that still had a pretty coherent social base around it. The labor movement was around it. Sections of the middle class were around it. And, and that was the fight that Harris fought. It was a very much like, it was very much like the Thatcherite uh, project of the 80s in Britain, where it was like, once and for all, we're going to sort out who runs the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it labor calling the shots or is it uh, the, the capitalist class and Harris waged that battle and renovated and won, defeated labor in, in a, in a essentially called their bluff over waging a general strike and a disruptive general strike and was able to push through the restructuring of all the social programs and social services along uh, you know various aspects like lean lean uh, production ideas were brought in bring that into like the hospital sector right yeah outsourcing contracting out which of course continues today but i you have to wonder how much more can be done uh once uh beyond core services and um and and permanently uh having things function in a in a in the context of permanent austerity so that just things run on less money in general um, and 
also uh, means testing, bringing that back into what were universal or near universal social programs, really restricting people's ability to access them. Or if they were accessible, uh, theoretically, people would have to jump through so many more hoops to get them, which is a way of dissuading people from accessing them and reducing costs. And that whole project by Harris, what what is the... You have to ask yourself, is that what the Ford and Tories plan on doing, or do they even need to do that? There's many observations about the Liberals for the past 15 years in Ontario being kind of a, a caretaker government in terms of Harris's legacy. They never really reversed it. They had some reforms here and there in response to popular pressures, uh, but they never really reversed anything that Harris did in any fundamental way. In fact, in various areas, they completed that project, and hydro privatization is probably the most uh, remarkable and infamous and is really uh, part of their downfall, which incidentally was exactly one of the main reasons that the Harris Tories were defeated in 2003 is because they broke up Ontario Hydro, deregulated hydro rates, they went through the roof, and then they had to re-regulate them, but the damage had been done, and they were thrown out of office. It was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So do the Ford Tories actually have to push through any sort of massive Harris-like renovation of the state, or are we talking about something more like a Harper government, which builds, which which in a more paced and piecemeal way builds on the new normal that was established by the the kind of the the liberals before them in the nineties and maybe Mulroney in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, I don't think we could argue that Harper was really the the Thatcherite revolution that we feared it would be. That revolution really happened under Paul Martin. Exactly, and and that's kind of the. Martin to Harper is very much what I would say Harris is to Ford, which isn't to say that there are going to be, <laughs> that yeah. we should let our guard down, not at all. I think that's interesting. There's a bunch of threads in there. I mean, I think that it's interesting you point out the kind of already kind of anti-elitism that's there in Harris and in, in, and in the Tories, you know, going back to the 90s and, and even earlier in the, and, and that sort of social base in it. And as you say, and Ford you know, campaigned on something very different in many ways than Harris because he's made he's made these, you know, promises that he obviously can't keep because he, you know, there'll be more, more long-term care beds, more of this, more of that, and lower taxes and all that. So so it does seem um, that just continuing sort of that agenda, and, you know, he'll probably make the tax cuts and then, have, you know, mm-hmm. that just reinforces, as you say, that kind of permanent austerity that's, that's already there and you just kind of chip away at the next bit or the next bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that's forgotten about Harris is that he also campaigned on income tax cuts. It wasn't just an assault on uh, funding of social programs or on labor or on the poor. He he had the carrot and the carrot amongst a few other things, but the big one was uh, a 30% income tax cut. And he put that through, through uh, uh, the first two budgets. So by... I think the summer of 97, the 30% income tax promise had actually been delivered. and But the, the 
the uh, the reactionary aspect of that. It wasn't an income tax cut that benefited poor and working people. It was one where uh, something like 60% of the wealth uh, from that tax cut went to the top 10% income earners. And if Ford is going to be putting through his income tax cut uh, for, I believe, the first income bracket, which is something like no, it's the, it's the second one, as far as I understand. It's I think the the numbers I saw from the CCPA are quite similar: fifty percent going to the top ten percent, and then right. you know, and the next thirty or forty percent going to the to that you know second from the top. Yeah, I one of the aspects that I think that we how would I put this Ford. Ford's leadership is really new. It's only since March. Yeah. And the base that had been built up by the PCs over the previous two or three years after the Liberals won that unexpected majority in 2014 was done under Brown's leadership. And his whole strategy was, from the right, trying to hug the center. And he had ads talking about the PCs are a party for everyone. And he moderated some of the the social conservatism, like the stuff around repealing the new sexual education curriculum, which mm-hmm. Ford definitely jumped on. And Brown also, I think, it's quite clearly that he rode much higher in the polls, 45, even up to 50%. And by the time the election rolled around, it was really Ford's election to lose. I think everybody had in their heads that it that they were essentially a government in waiting. So he did bring the party down, and, and even in the middle of the election campaign, there were polls showing him in the, the mid-30s. They ended up with 40% support, which is five points below what Harris achieved twice and is, is five to ten points below where, I, where Brown's leadership was. So... There's, I'm I'm kind of skeptical the extent to which Ford's base is is uh, consolidated. Uh, there there's, in many ways, I see it as an absence of an opposition. As much support as the NDP campaign or platform has had in terms of being left wing and progressive. It really only rolled out over the last few months and, and had this awesome task of playing catch-up to the Tories really capturing the anti-liberal anger for, for you years. Know, years or so. Yeah, So, and, and really the incredible thing that Brown did was capture the anger over hydro rates, whereas in the early 2000s when that happened under the Harris Tories, it was... There was a really coherent union-led campaign, and the NDP did quite a good job on it as well. And uh, although the hangover for the NDP from from the early 90s was still there, and and they didn't have really much of a chance of being elected, but this time around, that sentiment was pulled to the right, not to the left. And that, that was kind of the genius of Brown's strategy, which was to moderate some of the further right social conservatism and and back away from the the 
the Hudak's ridiculous promises of right to work in Ontario and and massive public sector layoffs and tapping into people's legitimate grievances and, and giving them kind of a place to park their boat. And I don't think those people really went with Ford because of any sort of commitment to a kind of slash and burn Tory platform or ideology. I think it was um, it was really a vote by default or a referendum on trusting mm-hmm. Ford, if anything, as opposed to being mobilized by the left and labor. Yeah. So it, it's it's a complicated uh, and and contradictory base of support that he has, especially in 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 the working class suburbs and and commuter regions of, of the southern part of the province. And and if anything, that's that's the thing that gives, you know, that, that makes this, that's the silver lining, and that's what makes this moment a little bit more, more hopeful in that, you know, there can be more sand that can be thrown, uh, thrown in these gears. It, it doesn't seem sort of, you know, so inevitable. Um, and especially I think the campaign made, as you say, kind of made that clear, just that, sort of attrition of support compared to compared to where where brown had brought the tories and and on that point i wanted to shift sort of um and make a you know get you to make a similar comparison also with with harris's years and his tenure which which was also significant uh punctuated by you know significant opposition from the left and the unions and social movements um most notably the the days of action i was hoping you could give us you know a brief sort of synopsis very brief synopsis of that fight back under harris uh, and just kind of the lessons it holds for for today. Sure. The the really the great lesson is how it began, and that's something that I've been thinking of uh, just like day after day, hour after hour since the election, and even before it is that the days of action, which were these citywide uh, general strikes in. 11 different cities across Ontario. Some of them weren't strikes. They were just big marches, but most of them were significant strikes in the public and even the private sector, especially the auto sector. Uh, They were these big protests against Harris. But to get to that point, Harris, like Ford, was elected in the beginning of June, and this was in 95. It took the work of grassroots activists outside of the unions, also union members, building protests and doing the, the diligent work in labor councils and their union locals and, and building up relationships and getting people out to protest, uh, and doing some creative actions, uh, essentially lighting a kind of flame of resistance before the union leadership uh, saw... Harris as as the as the uh, kind of the common sense revolutionary that he he posed himself as. In fact, labor leaders, even ones that I respect on the on the left, like Sid Ryan, were counseling the activists at the time. You know, hold on, let's not let's not really hammer the government just yet. We'll be able to sit down with them and ta- essentially talk them out of their ridiculous plan, but. This didn't happen, and by the end of September, this grassroots organizing effort had been able to pull in uh, labor council support in in the in Metro Toronto, in particular, or the GTA. I guess 
at the time it was Metro Toronto, and have this massive demonstration of 10,000 when the legislature opened at the end of September. And from there, it rapidly escalated uh, into the London Day of Action, the first one on December 11th, only, you know, really two and a half months later. Mm-hmm. And one of the other aspects, too, is the, the labor leaders reacted really aggressively and uh, against Bill 7, which was the massive labor law rollback that came at the beginning of October, which was also when the 22% cut to social assistance was implemented. So it just detonated this movement across the province of protests. And so the Tories were traveling around the province that fall uh, doing party fundraisers at these uh, ridiculously overpriced, uh, you know, per plate events and to replenish party coffers that had been expended during the election. And it just became a focal point for so many protests, hundreds of people in all sorts of towns that, you know, never had protests this big or this militant and angry, you know, hundreds of people. And, and every single day almost, if you read through the newspaper record, you can't, you kind of can't grasp how intense it was. It was really like a hot autumn. And the Days of Action came out of the OFL, the Ontario Federation of Labor Convention in November that year, which was a plan to do these rotating citywide strikes to lay the foundation for escalating towards a province-wide strike. And that effort played out with ups and downs over the following two and a half years before it was formally suspended and the the union affiliates of the OFL swung in uh, behind the NDP or at the time, uh, kind of for the first time, a strategic voting strategy, either Liberal or NDP, to get rid of the Tories. And it was that difference over electoral options that is kind of at the root of the days of action, never escalating towards a a province-wide general strike, never really moving towards that uh, big confrontation. Despite days of action, the, the metro days of action in Toronto, for example, the city was described as a ghost town, Something like a million people stayed away from work. There was a protest that marched on Queen's Park of something in the order of like 150 to 200,000 people. So that's incredible, you know. It, it absolutely to... the numbers are are mind boggling. Um, yeah, the London strike was something like 30,000 people, and there was a march of 15,000 in, in minus 25 weather. Yeah. The following January, there was an education rally called by uh, OECTA, the Catholic Teachers Association, that was 35,000. The march in Hamilton a month later was 100,000. So it just kept ballooning. And what would happen is the labor sh- leadership had this ongoing civil war over where this campaign was going. Uh, I mean, we still have these civil wars in the labor movement right now over political allegiances, and that's really what it's about, political allegiance and, and strategy, and this stems to the, 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 the Ray government under the NDP where one faction of the unions said we're loyal to the NDP and the other faction, the public sector unions, 
with the auto workers backing them up, split from the NDP and actually won a vote at the OFL convention in 93 to split the whole organization, the OFL, from the NDP as a protest against the social contract, which was the, the NDP's uh, part of their austerity turn, opening up public sector contracts and implementing all sorts of cuts, including unpaid days off, which were called Ray Days. And that split persisted through the, the days of action, and there was a power struggle between these two factions. And so when, when the pro-NDP, the, the NDP loyalist unions, recaptured the leadership in, in the November 97 Ontario Federation of Labour Convention, that within something like eight months, the whole days of action had been wound down and shut down. And, and they said, okay, now is the time to go and build uh, the NDP for the 99 election. And a bunch of unions like the CAW and public, some public sector unions and teachers said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to throw our eggs into a strategic voting basket. It's this civil war among the labor leadership that really undermined the potential of the protest movement that was really set in motion by grassroots organizers and then pulled in just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people into a really incredibly promising confrontation. How does, I mean, how does all this like rich history apply to today is that we have very many of the same problems we have. It, it, it sounds quite familiar in many ways. I mean, there's yeah. obviously big differences, but there's, yeah. There, you have all the, the divided loyalties of the union exactly. leaderships to which political parties or or strategic voting, um, and and that's that's a relate that's a kind of uh, a debate and a political fight that has also matured over twenty years. So it's it's evolved and it has different, slightly different dynamics in some cases. Some unions like QP have come back to the NDP fold, which they did do for the ninety nine election. Then there's also the kind of small army of grassroots organizers with one foot in neighborhoods and one foot in in the workplace like fight for 15 but other groups as well that i think can pick up that can learn from that early part of the days of action and and and, uh, realize that they do have the potential of of initiating a larger fight back but it, you know, part of that really depends on how hard is Ford going to come down with, with the axe or the hammer. Uh, and, and that was one of the reasons why it was so explosive is that the Harris government was so aggressive. It was really a blitzkrieg of, of legislation and um, uh, directives from cabinet to just radically restructure the province and, and just put it on a permanent austerity basis of how how things were funded or not funded yeah yeah and and in some sense you know i'm sure that the toys will be trying to learn their their own lessons from that from that as well yeah i mean they're, they're quite effective in uh intervening politically in how issues are shaped and and debated uh they certainly have the assist from not just the right-wing media like the Toronto Sun, but the, the kind of bland, liberal, centrist media that uh, doesn't really t- 
tackle their critiques very well. Uh, and they also, I mean, clearly in many areas of the province, they actually have a ground game. They do have local organization that is able to pull the vote. And, uh, but, the, you know, they do have those contradictions in those crucial suburban and commuter ridings. Those are largely working class ridings. And they're also large immigrant and populations of racialized people who uh, maybe pulled toward the Tories on some issues, but when it comes down to questions, uh, you know, bread and butter working class questions, that's a wedge for the unions and the left and, and uh, activists who are looking to kind of break up and fragment or at least paralyze uh, the, the capacities of the Tories in those areas. And that that's that's going to be a kind of medium to long-term battle. Uh, it, it kind of, uh, and that requires some strategy. And I think that even in 95, despite the civil war that was going on in organized labor, I, that there was a stronger left and there were stronger uh, uh, networks of people in the unions. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean we the work can't be done right now. It's just... Uh, it's going to require a lot of people going on a collective learning curve together for the first time in quite some time. That was Doug Nesbitt, PhD student in history at Queen's University. Next, Dina Ladd of the Workers' Action Center on organizing a challenge to Doug Ford. I was going to, I was going to start and, you know, congratulate you on, on electing an anti-elitist uh, crusader who will solve all your problems <laughs> with lower taxes, cheap beer, and the magic of efficiencies, but I think that's might be a little too uh, too unkind. Um, on a more serious note, what, what what do you think are the factors um, that contributed most to to Doug Ford's win in the Ontario election? I think that's the question many people are asking. I mean, I I think that um, fundamentally, I feel that there was a weakness in a, in the capacity on the ground to organize and take um, his agenda or lack of it fundamentally on. I think that a lot of people were waiting for the Richard drop to start their organizing. And so if, if you think about it, most, most of the organizing that happened around the elections happened after... Um, May 8th, May 9th. I mean, obviously, some of the individual NDP candidates were, were you know, doing door knocking and doing some of that individual, um, uh, you know, building relationships and supports within their neighborhoods and their communities. But in terms of sort of, you know, having a broader vision for uh, what where Ontario needed to go, um, I, I feel that there's a number of issues there. I, you know, first, I mean, we were hoping that the NDP would come out with a much stronger platform earlier mm -hmm. than they did, and one that could, you know, really uh, carve a distinctive path. All of all of that really happened in you know, April, May, um, you know, right before the elections. And we already knew that a lot of people were obviously, for many reasons and for many different reasons, 
setup of the Liberals and, and were not sort of, you know, seeing that their lives were fundamentally changing. And unfortunately, you know, the the, the gains that we had made in the 15 and Fairness campaign had, have just come in, right, in January. People are just starting to understand what that means. And so in some ways, I felt like we were, you know, um, in a race against time um, to try to get that information out to communities because things did move really, really quickly um, once the legislation for 15 and Fairness passed in November. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, a real lack of a clear left politic for people to organize, you know, and I'm, and I'm talking sort of, you know, a year before the elections would have been really brilliant. I think um, organizing in communities, I think that we knew, um, we knew in May of 2017 when, you know, shit hit the fan with the minimum wage going up to 15, we faced such a severe corporate backlash and such a, um, you know, uh, sort of, you know, the sky will fall, you know, companies will be destroyed, uh, people's lives will be torn apart, nobody will be able to afford anything. I mean, all of that started happening in May of 2017. And so we knew that the labor movement, the anti-poverty movement, the childcare movement, the housing movement, all of these different forces needed to start organizing because Patrick Brown at that point was trying to appear as a red Tory and was trying to appear as the sort of, you know, um, the complete sort of, you know, solution to people's, you know, feelings of kind of, you know, things are not working for me. And so at that point, we we knew that he had already a lot of support. His advertising was starting to come out um, in in 2017. Corporations were starting to threaten the liberals. You could see the liberals starting to, you know, uh, wither a bit under the assault. And um, and and that corporate backlash just started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then obviously in January. It really was unleashed when the minimum wage went up to 14. And, you know, we saw corporate lobby groups like the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. We started to see things in the private and public sector where employers in, in March and April were refusing to bargain because they wanted to wait until after the elections because they were hoping that a conservative majority would happen. And so there were so many signs, there were so many signs that this was happening. Um, And unfortunately, um, we, I mean, I will speak for the 15 and Fairness campaign and the Workers Action Center. I mean, we just didn't have the capacity and the resources to be out in every single city in Ontario to counter uh, what was being said. So I think, you know, your your question is not an easy question to answer. It's very, it's complicated, right? I think there are many, many factors going on in terms of, you know, um, lack of capacity on the ground to organize. The fact that we should have, you know, many movements should have been doing this work a year ago. Um, the fact that there was no, you know, a, you know, only in the last few weeks before the elections was there 
a very clear alternative that started to really come forward uh, from the NDP. I mean, they had released their platform in, in bits and pieces, but in terms of really putting forward a strong, progressive alternative, that happened, I think, a bit too late in the game. Um, and and then I and then I think that there's a lot of misinformation, no information around the, the conservative platform, and 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 a lack of confusion, uh, or sort of much confusion around what that platform really means. Because whenever whenever um, you know we heard that for speaking, he'd be like, oh no, nobody's going to lose their jobs. Everything's fine. I love teachers. I love nurses. Yeah, no, I'm for the little person. Like, you know, I mean, it was just this kind of, you know, very generic, like, you know, it's going to be great. Yeah. Just vote for me. It's going to be all good. We'll take care of you. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm your man. And and people didn't really understand what that means, I think. And, and unfortunately, that will be unfolding in the next little while. Right. And once you tabulate um, all the promises and, and all that. And I think, yeah, it was very easy for Ford to sort of play that uh that figure, and that leads, I mean, I think that, that leads a lot of people to instinctively compare him uh, to Donald Trump, um, which is the next thing I want to ask, oh, just because I think I think that, that comparison gets made fairly often. I, I think it's a relatively, you know, lazy one, but I wanted to, to get your opinion to see if you think this is, you know, useful or accurate, um, or is Ford something quite different, and if so, you know, we can talk about how, how similar they are, but more importantly, what, what does that mean for for the strategy for opposing Ford? I mean, I, I think that what we have to be careful about, and I, and I think, um, you know, absolutely, there are some similarities between between Ford and Trump. I think in terms of the sort of generic soundbite, but I think that I mean, overall, I think one of the things. I mean, there's, there's many things that make me feel optimistic. Um, overall, you know, only 40% of the people that voted actually voted for Doug Ford. The majority of the people voted for, um, I'd say, a pretty progressive platform. It's, it's the majority of the people in this province voted for a different agenda. And I think that that's what we have to focus on. And I think that those people who did vote for Doug Ford, um, obviously he does have some of his, you know, absolutely sort of uh, right-wing, um, you know, ideologues, people who believe in, the, in, in corporations having much more power and flexibility in the workplace, the ability to make as much profit as they want, um, you know, and, and little government and all of that sort of stuff. But I think the majority of people didn't vote for that. And so I think in our in our understanding of the elections, it should help us to understand then that there is a lot of opportunity to be able to expose um, the, pot- the potential cutbacks that are going to happen and expose that agenda as it starts to unfold and I think a lot of people will be like, I didn't vote for that. And frankly, because he didn't talk about his platform, I think that there's lots of opportunities for us to say, you know, you said you're for the people. Well, we're the people. You never said that in your platform. We, we don't support that. And I think a lot of people didn't vote for that. And I think that that's one of the things that we have to 
start to come back um, or start to get ready is for, again, a debate on the issue, not on whether or not you like Ford. Um, I think that a lot of people want to just get into bashing him as the man. And I think it's really important to expose um, the the issues that he's talking about because, you know, um, if, if, if we're just bashing people because they voted for Ford, well, then we're not opening up the conversation about how to bring them along to our side, right? And yeah. to talk about what issues are affecting working people. A lot of working people voted for him. And if we just say, well, if you voted for him, then, you know, you're a piece of crap. Well, that's not going to, you know, and you were wrong. Um, that is not going to build a movement to fight the cutbacks and to fight whatever is going to happen in the next four years. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's accurate. And I think that's the effectiveness also of what, you know, for example, the difference between, say, Sanders' opposition to, to Trump and a lot of the mainstream Democrats' um, opposition to Trump, which really, lots of that falls flat pre- precisely because it's, uh, it's so focused on the individual and, um, and then, and rubbing off on, um, on his supporters. Uh, I wanted to circle back to kind of what you finished with and, and ask a bit more just about what, what kind of electoral coalition, um, Ford was, that Ford was able to assemble. Um, and I think this differs a bit also from, from the case in the U S and, and particularly, you know, which, where do you think that coalition is weak? Um, and, and going forward, so if you could just sort of elaborate that that last bit of uh, of your answer, what the coalition that Ford assembled was, and and where you think you can really make uh, make inroads and, and and weaken it. Well, I mean, I think that he was appealing from a wide. Um, he he appealed. Uh, he was going in and trying to do a wide appeal to bring everybody in, but by not talking about anything substantially, not answering any questions, not giving any information, not revealing the platform unless there was some very general, general pieces. And and just like, you know, Patrick Brown has, you know, given wide sweeps to sort of bring in potential um, you know, anti-choice support, um, the religious fundamentalists in terms of being against sex education, um, but also I would say um, around uh, queer issues as well and a more, you know, obviously progressive definition of, of who's a family and what that means. I think that um, he's been very clear to sort of stay away from any sense of what the $6 billion in cutbacks, in fact, just, just constantly talking about taxes. So in some ways, I think that those are, are huge weaknesses because I think that it shows that he doesn't have a strong mandate, um, that it hasn't been a very clear uh, platform and agenda. And I think that, which is, which is different from when Mike Harris got elected, right? right. He campaigned on very explicit, um, cuts that he outlined in his, you know, what was it, Common Sense Revolution. Yeah. Um, that did not happen this time. Um, in fact, you know, they basically 
avoided answering any questions. And so I think that those are huge weaknesses, but our ability to expose those weaknesses, again, have to be very strategic and not just based on, you know, this sort of um, visceral, like, you know, anti-fraud agenda. It has to be uh, arguing on the specific policies that he's got and people and groups and issues that he's going to attack. And, and, I, I, and I think that that is where... And, and we saw this, like, this is not our first rodeo, right? Like, his yeah. brother he was the mayor of Toronto, right? And so, in some ways, what we saw was when Rob Ford was elected, um, again, you know, same kind of platform, very vague, but really supported by um, the corporate right wing. And so, um, but what that led to was a... a, a the, a real massive kind of organizing, stop cuts coalition. Uh, people really came together and started really organizing and then managed to sort of put a hold on some of the stuff, lost some stuff, like obviously the contracting out of, of garbage collection and a few pieces like that. But, you know, um, through sort of effective organizing, managed to kind of hold off on some of the deeper cuts that I think could have been made. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I mean, that did pave the way to John Tory, so yeah. which is a whole other conversation. But yes. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I I think that's exactly it. Like you know, Ford is not remembered. Rob Ford is not remembered as a particularly effective mayor. Um, yeah. But like you say, it led the way to uh, to to a more principled, uh, you know friendly or more effective conservative maybe maybe more effective is the right in in some ways in some ways i feel like things could have been a lot worse under patrick brown's leadership right in some ways because i think he was coming across as this benign sort of you know guy that was sort of you know looked tried to appear very harmless was sort of you know pacifying everyone had you know was actually sort of, you know, trying to do the carbon tax thing, yeah. sort of saying, yeah, no, absolutely support 15, we'll just phase it in, like doing all of these things to kind of appease everyone and, and be this person that could be trustworthy. And in some ways, there's, there's quite commonalities between him and John Tory, I think, right? Because John Tory has been able to become the mayor and has, you know, continued on this, you know, on his agenda of, you know, wanting to privatize and continue the contracting out stuff. And and we've seen that sort of um, sort of response to mobilization kind of lessen a little bit, right, than yeah. what it was with Rob Ford. So in some ways, having someone like Doug Ford being out there, being very explicitly, this, this is who I am and, and who will, I think, um, be quite, you know, when the cutbacks start to happen, when he names his transitionary team, um, you know, when all that starts to unfold, I think, you know, having to kind of go up against someone like him, um, who, who is quite blunt and explicit, you know, again, we'll see how blunt and explicit he will be, but I think now he has the majority, I think he's going to feel quite um, okay about actually really revealing his true colors, right? Yeah. And and that's when I think we'll be, you know, we'll, we'll have to really 
be ready to move, be ready to move, defend, but also organize and push. Yeah. No, and I, th- I think you're right. And, and, you know, he actually lost a fair chunk, you know, who knows, an election campaign can always change things, but he lost a fair chunk of conservative support relative to Patrick Brown just a few, just a few months ago. Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, there's been scandal after scandal. I mean, so many PC candidates have um, scandals connected to them being nominated, to being elected, to how they've actually yeah. gotten into their positions. Um, but And then this is similar, I think, a little bit to Trump, but that that things haven't stuck, right? Even Renata, his sister-in-law, coming out yeah. with a, you know, uh, uh, a sort of a, an action against him, a you know, a, a civil suit against him um, for his 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 uh, running of his own company, uh, you know, didn't stick. Yeah, that was that was surprising because that's the type of thing that you know hits at hits at the kind of picture he paints of himself. Um, yeah. I wanted to. We're running out of time, but I did want to get get a couple more things out of you. One, one I wanted to ask. You've talked a lot about um, the economic policies, and I, I mean, I think that I think you're you're right, and it seems like implicitly you you know you think it's really important to um, to focus on that. I wanted to just ask what you thought about this. You know, what you thought about the mix of economic and sort of social conservatism um, within Ford and within. And within his his agenda, um, and then I wanted to just see if you could close with saying, you know, how you see, you know, just just the next few months, and 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 where you see, um, how you see the sort of opposition fight back, really sort of starting in a concrete way. Again, I think that there is um, a very strategic use of that social conservatism that is that is kind of trying to hook into homophobia um, and traditional kind of conservative values of what families, um, sexuality, uh, women's choice over their bodies, um, all of those issues combined. And I think that, you know, um, you know, you can have all the kinds of opinions you want around Kathleen Wynne, but there was a ton of money that went into violence against women stuff. Um, you know, there was um, a huge conversation that opened up and the ability to start having some, you know, decent curriculum around um, kids having information around consent and around their bodies um, and, and, and implementing that through the education system. And so that is very scary to those uh, social conservative forces. And so I think that, you know, Doug Ford and Patrick Brown absolutely capitalized on that. But they, again, it's like how much of it, what promises have been made in bathrooms uh, in terms of what policies will will um, be revisited, <laughs> such as women's reproductive rights, for instance. Um, you know, we don't know, right? Because there has never, there's nothing explicit around this. Patrick Brown tried to control them, and it blew up in his face. And I think in some ways his ejection from the progressive conservatives was, you know, the fact that he, he, you know, basically turned around and said, well, no, I'm not going to touch anything around sex education. No, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And they threw him out of the party, right? Now, we don't know what promises, as I said, have been made to those right-wing fundamentalists 
in the party around issues. Um, and and so I think, so again, I'm trying to be half full on a silver lining, <laughs> but I think the sort of the, the combined sort of, you know, corporate agenda to basically stop, you know, minimum wage workers from earning more combined with, you know, the attack on women's rights for choice and on the ability for us to define, you know, who we want to love and and how we want to do that, I I think could help us build a very strong broad-based coalition. And I think that one of the big conversations uh, that is, you know, starting to happen is, you know, how how do we build that broad-based coalition? How do we make sure that we have each other's backs um, when, uh, you know, the first group comes under fire, right? Yeah. And who is that going to be? You know, how quickly is he going to move? I mean, if if he's being advised by any of the folks that were under the Harris regime and the Harper regime, which he has many of those people around him, they will probably advise him to move very fast and very quick to basically destabilize any movement, you know, against him, right? And to throw us into disarray. So that's what we're all expecting, or that's what I'm expecting anyways. (laughs) I'm I'm expecting them to move very quickly um, and and to show, and for him to show that he means business and then to win more, financial and political support from um, the, the corporations and from those leaders that support that party, right? Mm-hmm. And then to give him the, the money and the ability to move um, on, on, on that agenda. So I think that on the flip side, for those of us who are looking at how, how to respond, I think it's important to respond very quickly. And, and that's why, in March, unfortunately, predicting that this was going to happen, <laughs> uh, we had called for a June 16th demonstration for decent work and to basically, and in some ways, you know, that, that is becoming a broader platform um, already um, in terms of making the links to uh, potential uh, attacks on, on women's reproductive rights um, on people with disabilities, um, you know, on privatization um, and, and further other cutbacks. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, we are, you know, organizing this demonstration that starts at the Ministry of Labor, but is going to Queen's Park. But then in addition to that, I think that what's really quite critical is for us to then, um, and, I, and, I, and I really think that many of our... Um, Many of the groups that are organizing around different issues are still talking to the same people and they're not going beyond their comfort zone and they're not reaching out and expanding their movements and the people that they're speaking to. And I think that that is one of the fundamental issues that we're dealing with is that, you know, you cannot just keep talking to the same 200 people, right? Yay, that's great that you've got 200 people on your list. Good for you. But guess what? That doesn't include uh, people in all of these communities across the province that have been devastated by the 
rise of precarious jobs, by the manufacturing loss that happened in 2008, and by the creation of temp and shitty contract jobs in these communities. And people are struggling to survive, right? Yeah. And so you gotta you got to figure out how... We, how we need to build links with those communities. We can't just be talking to the same people. And frankly, I think a lot of people talk to the same people during the elections. And that's not going to, you know, uh, that's not going to make the kind of movement that we're going to need to take on uh, the potential cutbacks that we face. So I think the, the real job here is for us to really understand where are the people that didn't get the, where the majority of the people didn't get the people that they really wanted and how to galvanize them and move them into the movement and struggle and then work with the NDP candidates that got elected and work with anyone who got elected who's willing to fight those cutbacks. And um, but we gotta we gotta we gotta organize on the ground. We gotta be reaching out and building our movements and not talking to the same people. Like it's just not working. And um, I, I think that that is one of the biggest challenges we have in the left. And uh, that means doing a lot of training and skills building, and getting people out there, uh, building their confidence to do that organizing. And, and unfortunately, in moments like this, in moments of crisis, people don't want to hear that, right? They don't want to hear that you've got to actually build the movement in, a, in you know, from the ground up, because the instinct is to say, we need to be on the streets. We need to mass demonstration. But the thing is, we, we will have a big demonstration on, on Saturday. I have no doubt in my mind but it can't just be a one-hit wonder, right? Yeah. And it can't just be the same old people. And so that's why, you know, the fight for 15 and fairness. I mean, we are getting, you know, uh, communities that may have never been out to a rally before to come out on Saturday. Um, and and we're going to have to just keep doing that work and, and keep building. But I think that's the tension in moments like this where people – want to be out on the streets and have this big show of resistance. But I think in order to create the bigger resistance on the streets, we actually also need to be doing that fundamentally labor-intensive, tough work of doing the pounding of the streets and building our bases and training and doing the kind of organizing. And and that's not a very popular thing for people to want to hear. <laughs> but that's no. what I really fundamentally think has been behind our success as a Fight for 15 and Fairness Coalition because we have been working with communities that have never been involved before and and, and who are passionate and committed uh, um, supporters of decent work and labor rights. And, and I think that that will be, in some ways, the salvation for, um, you know, for, for the soon-to-be kind of, you know, announcements of, privatization and contracting out and an attacks on our rights. That was Dina Ladd of the Workers' Action Center, and that's all for this week. Until next time.